Good afternoon and welcome to the Virtual Cato Institute for a discussion of our recently published book, A Fiscal Cliff, New Perspectives on the U.S. Federal Debt Crisis. I am here with the book's editors. John Merrifeld is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He has uh, worked in the past on a variety of public policy issues, including resource management, school choice, and of course, fiscal and budget policy. Barry Polson is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Colorado, who has worked in the past on tax and transportation issues. He is a past president of the North American Economics and Finance Association, an adjunct scholar at the Heritage Foundation, and a senior fellow of the Independence Institute, among other affiliations. Uh, Chris Edwards is the director of tax and budget policy studies at the Cato Institute, and uh, he also has a chapter in the volume that we are discussing. Some cynics have suggested already uh, that with a Democrat headed to the White House and Republicans in charge of the Senate, it's an awfully convenient time to suddenly take an interest in the questions related to the national debt and budget deficits. Uh, I can say on two fronts that this is really not quite a, a telling criticism of the Cato Institute. First, this book was in uh, gestation for quite some time, and its uh, appearance shortly after the election is nothing that we could have arranged or predicted. And second, the Cato Institute has never stopped taking an interest in these questions. It may be the case that this or that politician wasn't terribly interested in them not naming any names, but uh, we always have been. We have not gone anywhere, and the amount of attention that our research does or does not command on Capitol Hill or in the press, that's unfortunate, but here we are, and uh, we believe what we believe, and we are here to tell you why. So uh, without further ado, I believe uh, I have Barry Polson up to speak first. Each of the speakers will speak for approximately 10 minutes. And following that, we will be happy to take questions. Those questions can come from either the Cato website, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, and please use the hashtag Cato Books when you do so. We will, we will uh, take questions throughout the presentation and answer them following all three speakers' comments. And one more bit of housekeeping, I suppose. When answering social media questions, please do identify your name and social media platform and your organization or institution. Uh, that will be, uh, will be helpful for us. All right, uh, Barry, uh, take it away, please. Well, Jason, uh, I think uh, every country uh, has experienced at some point debt fatigue in the post-Second World War period. And debt fatigue simply means that your country allows debt to increase more rapidly than your gross domestic product. And of course, the problem with debt fatigue is that 
eventually it, you, you're going to default on your debt. And uh, so I'd like to talk briefly about some of the countries that uh, have had some success in addressing this problem. And uh, uh, of course, some countries like the US that have failed to address the problem and what we've learned from this. I think if we go back to the 1980s, early 90s, uh, in Northern Europe, they were experiencing a, a recession and several countries at that point uh, began to experiment with new fiscal rules. The most successful of these were Switzerland and Sweden. And uh, basically the fiscal rules that were in place weren't working. So what those countries did was to uh, enact fiscal rules. And in Switzerland, this, this was first of all at the, at the cantonal level and then at the national level. And basically uh, the fiscal rules require that uh, the government balance the budget over the business cycle. In other words, uh, if the government incurs some deficits at, uh, uh, at a portion of the, of the recession, it has to offset that with uh, surpluses. So the idea of a cyclically balanced budget. And of course the government uh, is constrained to grow at the rate of gross domestic product. The government can't grow, government spending can't grow more rapidly than the gross domestic product. And I think what was unique in these uh, success stories is that these were formal rules. And the idea of the debt break was that if your deficit gets to uh, above 3% of GDP, then you put on the brakes. You, these are like guardrails and you have to constrain limit spending and at some point generate sur surplus revenue to offset that deficit. Uh, and I think that the idea of uh, enacting these fiscal rules at the national level then took hold. And uh, so the, the, the Swiss were very successful. They, they were able to reduce their debt uh, ratio to GDP by roughly half, from about 40% to 20%. Sweden was even more aggressive in their approach to this problem. They actually, their rules required that the government actually run a surplus a 1% surplus uh, and then imposing this type of spending limit, they targeted debt. They tried over time to reduce their debt. At that point, it was above 60% and they were successful in getting it uh, significantly below 60%. And uh, other European countries then, Germany and other countries began to adopt these new fiscal rules and they were eventually adopted at the supranational level in the European Union. And uh, so all of the European Union countries now impose similar types of fiscal rules trying to address this problem of debt fatigue. And uh, the most successful, of course, are Northern Europe. Uh, when those countries entered the Great uh, Recession in 2008, uh, they were able to pursue fiscal policies without generating a huge increase in debt. Uh, and some of them were less successful. Uh, and out of that experience, they actually introduced some refinements in these fiscal rules to make them more effective. And so that's continued. Uh, so we have this one group of countries that have had some success in addressing debt fatigue, but most countries, including the US, have not been successful. We continue to allow debt to increase relative to our gross domestic product. Now, the problem, of course, is that uh, in some cases, this does lead to default. And we have the spectacular defaults of, 
of Argentina. Argentina has defaulted uh, many times in the post-war period. And the explanation is very simple. They pursue very expansionary fiscal policies. The central bank steps in and monetizes those debt, that debt. Uh, that results in high rates of inflation, high interest rates, and eventually they default. And that closes off the capital market and they stagnate. Uh, other failures aren't quite so spectacular uh, in Southern Europe. Uh, Italy and Greece, when they hit this, uh, the, uh, the economic crisis in 2008, uh, like Argentina, they pumped a lot of money into the system. They experienced inflation, higher interest rates, and eventually defaulted. So uh, that's sort of the one extreme. Uh, we have other countries that uh, uh, are somewhat unique. Japan is very unique because for three decades, it's experienced debt fatigue it's allowed debt to grow much more rapidly than their gross domestic product. Now it's up around 250%. It's the most indebted country in the world today. And uh, this is rather unusual. And the explanation is that most debt in Japan is owned domestically. And so they haven't defaulted. But what's, what's happened in Japan is what I call the Japan disease. Basically, uh, the government, every time there is a crisis, the government engages in massive bailouts and injecting uh, stimulus. The central bank monetizes that. Uh, now the central bank has driven the interest rates down to zero. And uh, at the same time, the central bank is buying up all sorts of debt, not just government debt, but also debt of corporations, debt of banks. And in Japan, the Japan disease is a problem of zombies. Anytime you have the government that's bailing out banks and bailing out uh, enterprises, uh, bailing out governments, you end up with zombie enterprises. They only exist because of the bailouts. When I lectured in Japan, as far as I could tell, Mitsubishi shipbuilding existed only because of these government subsidies and bailouts. And the problem with that is you end up with a stagnant economy. Japan has stagnated for three decades. So, uh, that's, that's, I think, the experience. Uh, and where the U.S. falls in this, uh, I'm going to let my colleagues discuss this, but basically, I think uh, the U.S. Is, is pretty much like Japan. I think uh, our government has stepped in to bail out these, uh, uh, these government uh, organizations, corporations, banks, and we have these massive bailouts every time we have a a major fiscal shock, a major economic shock. And as a result, our debt to GDP continues to grow. And uh, I don't think we're gonna default in the near term, but I think we're gonna look more and more like Japan. And in fact, we are looking more like Japan. Our economic growth has stagnated now for a couple of decades. It, it's at least 1% lower than the long-term growth. And so we're projected to stagnate in the coming decades that has experienced much lower rates of economic growth. So that's sort of the story of the success and the failure. Unfortunately, we've ended up as a failure and we're starting to see some zombie banks, zombie enterprises, zombie governments like Illinois. So we're, we're starting to look like Japan and we have a Japan disease.
John Merrifeld, you're up next, and uh, we will be happy to hear your comments. Thank you, J thank you, Jason. Yeah, speaking metaphorically, uh, our book is called A Fiscal Cliff, and we're getting close to it. And not only that, I mean, we were we were advancing there at a good pace before the financial crisis hit 12 years ago. Uh, that financial crisis, the Great Recession, and now with the pandemic, has basically got us running towards the edge of the fiscal cliff. And well, it's a cliff as a good metaphor because what we're doing now is not sustainable. Uh, had we adopted fiscal rules, reined in our rate of spending growth in the 1990s, we would be in a good position now. The, it, we, the best consensus we have in terms of what's sustainable is a debt to GDP ratio of about 60%. Had we adopted a just a modest cap on the rate of uh, discretionary spending growth in the early 1990s, uh, we would be at that point now and we could uh, relatively easily sustain it, although we, you know, we still face the challenges of the uh, demographics and the fact that we haven't yet reined in uh, healthcare spending. But we would be in a pretty good spot. But we didn't do that. We grew at about 5.5% uh, instead of the 3.5% or so that we, that we should have limited ourselves to to, to keep ourselves uh, sustainable. And so we, and we ran our simulation again uh, a few years ago before the pandemic hit. And then it looked like we could reach 60% uh, uh, debt to a, a GDP ratio with the debt defined to be all the debt by 20 years ago, about, I'm sorry, 20 years from now. And now the pandemic has hit, we've added about 20% to the debt. And so now we might, with 25 years, reach 60% debt to GDP ratio if we only count the debt owned by the public. We're moving the goalposts and we're making it harder by the things that we're doing and it, it's not sustainable. So the issue now is what will stop the trajectory that we're on now? What will either push us over the fiscal cliff or what will put a parachute on our backs so that when we sort of fall over it, uh, that at least we have a soft landing. And so we're in a position now where we have to do some things that we might not even otherwise look at. For example, uh, one of the things we're going to have discussed in a, in a conference coming up is what can we do with immigration policy to accelerate on the revenue side without adding too much on the spending side? As you know, uh, immigration policy is very controversial. And so some of that controversy may just have to step aside with the fiscal imperative saying, you know, we, we would rather not do some of these things, but now we have to because of the fiscal situation and dire consequences of going off this fiscal cliff uh, without some sort of a parachute on our backs. Uh, my look at it from through the simulation analysis that we've done is, uh, that we're likely to, to to go over the cliff and probably not if we if it's a, if we have a parachute it'll have some holes in it so we'll probably fall a little faster than we want to and it may be worse than what Barry described in terms of debt fatigue and slower growth so since some sort of a, a hard landing may be imminent what we probably need to do and that's what a lot of this book is about is to plan how to take advantage of some of the things the pressures that are likely to happen and how to ameliorate some of the bad things that, that, that may happen. Uh, how am I doing on my 10 minutes? I'm starting to ramble a little bit. Um, good, good on the 10 okay. minutes still. I don't, yep. 
I don't hear any feedback. Uh, so, so yes, continue. Oh, okay. All right. I thought I might have been okay. So among the things that we need to do after we cap spending growth, because it really doesn't matter what we do until we do that, because as you know from the election we just had, there are big spending plans. So if we if we add the revenues and tax increases or decreases, yeah, a tax decrease may add more to revenue than a decrease. But whichever one we do, if it adds revenue or the new administration, if it's if it's Biden and Harris, they may enact a carbon tax. All of that's just going to be spent, and that's not going to help us avoid going off a fiscal cliff, unless we have a cap on spending growth, to so that any revenue that we raise, for example, from things like selling mineral assets or any savings that we get from reforming entitlements, two things that we absolutely need to do, uh, that those revenues actually go to help us uh, reduce our debt to GDP ratio. Uh, so those are, the, those are the big two in terms of reducing the rate of spending growth, that is to cap, cap uh, discretionary spending growth and achieve some entitlement savings. And then on the revenue side, the big two are uh, selling some assets and maintaining the rate of economic growth and on top of that somehow manage to keep interest rates from rising all right uh thank you very much john and now we turn to chris edwards thanks a lot jason uh congratulations to uh john and and uh and barry and uh, jason for putting the fiscal cliff uh, book together uh, it's a really great collection of essays, and it's more needed than ever. Uh, soaring federal debt uh, is a disaster. Uh, federal debt will reach $21 trillion this year, which is 100% of our GDP. That's triple the 35% of GDP before the recession a decade ago. Uh, debt next year will top the all-time uh, record in the United States that we reached in World War II, and we're not at war today. U.S. government debt as a share of GDP today is much higher than many better run industrial countries such as Australia, Canada, Germany, Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, and others. They run a tighter fiscal ship than we do in the United States. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office projects that debt will rise from about 100% of GDP today to 200% by 2050. But that official forecast that is often reported in the media uh, is actually a, uh, an optimistic outlook. The real situation is actually worse than the official CBO projections uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is that both parties uh, want to pass more stimulus spending. That could be trillions of dollars more. Uh, incoming President Biden's campaign plan would spend $5 trillion uh, over the next decade. Uh, we may have unforeseen wars and health crises uh, in the future, which would push uh, up debt. Uh, and interest rates and other variables may be much worse than the CBO uh, projects. Uh, the CBO and its official forecasts uh, always assume a smooth sailing uh, in the economy, but that may not happen. Uh, so we are in the most fiscally dangerous situation in our nation's history. Uh, the COVID crisis created a sharp economic crash, uh, but the government's massive debt could create an even deeper uh, and, and larger and longer lasting uh, financial and economic crisis. Consider Greece. Greece is still suffering from its government debt caused crash a decade ago. Real GDP per capita in Greece in 2019 was still 20% lower than it had been a decade earlier before 
uh, its crash. So government uh, financial cause crashes can have long lasting economic effects. So how did we get here? Uh, I'm gonna put a chart on the screen uh, that shows uh, federal debt uh, as a share of GDP all the way back uh, to the beginning. So this chart shows you uh, debt as a share of GDP uh, all the way back to 1790. The first thing you notice is that debt spiked uh, numerous times during wars, uh, but the government always paid the debt down after the Civil War and after World War I and World War II. Uh, we've never had a legal rule to uh, require a balance in the federal budget, yet politicians always paid down the debt because it was a prudent and ethical thing to do. Now, there was a bit, the big break point in U.S. fiscal history was 1930. From 1790 to 1930, the government balanced the budget 68% of the years. There was widespread agreement that debt was harmful and ought to be reduced. From, however, from 1930 to today, the government's only balanced the budget 15% of the years. Politicians have been very irresponsible. The big drop in debt after World War II was not because politicians were responsible. It was because we had strong GDP growth in those years and the government ran high inflation in the decade after World War II, which reduced the real value uh, of debt. So what changed in the 1930s? Well, three things changed in the 1930s. The first one was the rise of Keynesian ideology. This was a new economic theory that said the deficits were good for the economy. That gave a green light to politicians to spend, spend, spend. The political urge to spend has been supercharged in recent years by global capital markets and central bank policies, which have kept interest rates low and made it easy for the politicians to borrow. Another uh, problem uh, stemming uh, going back to the 1930s was the invention of entitlement programs. Social Security was passed in 1935. Uh, this put a lot of the federal budget on automatic uh, pilot. A third problem is that there's been a growing push for the federal government to fund properly state and local activities like education. Uh, liberals like federal spending rather than state spending uh, because the federal government can deficit spend, uh, also because the federal tax code uh, hits the rich more than state tax codes. Uh, and a third issue is that lobby groups like highway lobby groups and education lobby groups uh, discovered that it's easier to lobby one Congress in Washington rather than having to lobby the 50 state capitals. So for all these reasons, more spending has been pushed up to the federal level uh, and federal deficit spending is now uh, out of control and getting worse. So, thank you um, very much. Oh, sorry. Well, well, let's uh, let me uh, finish here uh, uh, a little bit. Uh, so, why is rising federal debt uh, bad? Uh, deficit finance. There's. I'll give you five reasons why uh, federal uh, federal debt is bad, and then we'll we'll close out and go to questions. Um, federal debt financing encourages uh, excess and low value government spending. Unlike markets, the government has no rational way to allocate spending. Uh, to ensure that the benefits are higher than the costs. So a lot of government spending is wasteful for that reason. Rising federal debt just means more deferred taxes. Taxes damage the private sector. So the more debt uh, we build up, the more damage there will be to the private sector down the road. 
if federal government debt is financed domestically, uh, it may crowd out private sector investment. Uh, the long, uh, long-range projections from the CBO uh, point to rising interest costs crowding out uh, private sector investment, which will ultimately lower worker wages. So rising debt, well, uh, in the long run, they will crowd out private investment and reduce worker wages in the United States. Another problem is that if we finance uh, federal government debt from abroad, and a bit less than 40% of our federal debt is financed from abroad, it means that in the future, a rising share of the earnings of young Americans will be siphoned off uh, to pay foreign creditors. So people will be working harder in the future, but a rising share of their earnings will be siphoned off to pay foreign creditors. So our standard of living uh, will be lower. A fifth and final issue is that rising debt could trigger a financial and economic crisis. And let me read a, an extended quote from the CBO uh, on this issue in its, in its recent uh, long-range projections. The CBO said that rising debt could, quote, increase the risk of fiscal crisis, a situation in which investors lose confidence in the U.S. government's ability to service and repay its debt, causing interest rates to increase abruptly and inflation to spiral upward. Uh, unquote. The CBO continues, quote, in a fiscal crisis, dramatic increases in treasury rates would reduce the market value of outstanding government securities and the resulting losses incurred by holders of those securities could be large enough to cause some financial institutions to fail. A fiscal crisis could turn into a broader financial crisis. Because the U.S. plays a central role in, inter in the international financial system, such a crisis could spread globally, unquote. So that's the CBO. Essentially, a fiscal crisis could mean that inflation and interest rates spike upwards. Uh, it could force the government to jack up taxes suddenly, and it could stress and, and ultimately bankrupt many financial institutions globally that hold U.S. securities. So that is a potential disastrous situation uh, down the road. So what do we do about this uh, giant mess? Let me, let me close on this. Uh, we need large cuts to federal government spending uh, at the Cato Institute. Our downsizing government website describes a lot of cuts we can make to the federal budget. Uh, in particular, we should slash the $700 billion a year the federal government um, pays uh, for state and local activities uh, such as education. State governments have legal limits on their debt and they are disciplined by credit markets. So devolving fiscal power back to the states uses American federalism to support fiscal discipline. Now, liberal economists will often say that spending cuts would hurt the economy, but that's not correct. A leaner government would boost the economy because more resources would be allocated by the private markets. And I'll leave you with this. In the 1990s, Canada faced a government debt crisis like we face here today. And government debt and interest costs were soaring. A left of center government in Canada decided to turn 180 degrees and they started cutting spending. They cut everything, uh, welfare, defense, ADU provinces, business subsidies, and much more. Uh, Canada shrunk its federal government from 23% of GDP in 1992 to just 15% by 2008. Now, Keynesian economists would say, well, slashing the Canadian government spending must have caused a depression. Uh, but the exact opposite uh, happened. The Canadian economy, with those spending cuts and balanced budgets, uh, boomed for 15 years. Uh, Canada did not have a recession during those 15 years. Uh, the economy boomed and incomes rose. 
the Canadian economy was only dragged down by the U.S. financial crisis in 2008. So to sum up, the lesson uh, for America is that cutting spending to tackle soaring government debt uh, will help avert a financial crisis and it would free up resources for strong private sector economic growth. Uh, back to you, Jason, and we'll open it up for questions. Uh, yes, thank you, Chris. We have we have uh, quite a few questions uh, that have come in. The first one in the queue, how do you respond to the argument that large government deficits are needed to absorb the global glut of savings and provide financial markets with risk-free liquid assets? Uh, anyone on the panel can <laughs> jump in and take this. Uh, will will I mean, I'm not sure which uh, one of those words. Best I quality. think uh, will will eliminating deficits I, deprive markets of the kinds of liquid assets that they are used to to having around. Well, I, let, let me jump in and I just think say you're drawing that a blank. Japan, oh, go, okay, Barry, go for Japan it. Japan is a case where uh, where uh, I think the the government has, uh, of course, uh, stepped in, and uh, the Japanese, of course, do have high savings rates, uh, and I think that is uh, a result of the high rates of savings of both individuals and and corporations. Uh, so, uh, but I think that the, on the other side of that, you have the uh, Japanese government that is uh, engaged in massive spending programs. And uh, I think that's the problem that uh, debt fatigue uh, results in. Uh, I think that international capital markets are gonna allocate uh, capital from high savings countries like Japan to low savings countries like the US. Uh, but I don't think that that is really uh, the issue here. The issue is uh, on the spending side. And when you have a government that is incurring deficits and debt, uh, despite the fact that this you have these capital flows offsetting uh, savings, uh, the countries that are experiencing debt fatigue uh, are going to at some point fail as we've seen in uh, both in Argentina, Italy, and so forth. So uh, I don't think that that question really negates the problem of debt fatigue. John? All right, let me jump in here just a little bit. I One of the reasons that we had a long silence at the uh, after that question was asked is I think we were struggling with the premise of it that we had this global glut of savings. I think if that were the case, we wouldn't be struggling to monetize the debt here in the United States. So I think we need some substantiation of that premise before we can address that. Uh, one of the reasons that the Fed has a zero interest rate policy and is printing money and, uh, and buying up debt is because otherwise we would be struggling to find all of this additional money to uh, send out these stimulus payments and do other things uh, with the pandemic. And I think going forward, uh, following some of uh, Chris's comments, we're going to be in a world of hurt if we have to respond to any more crises like this because uh, we're, we're, we've spent ourselves and borrowed ourselves 
into a situation where we just don't have very much fiscal space to uh, to borrow money in large amounts further to deal with recessions or wars or what have you. All right, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, next I'm done, question, Jason. Yeah. Next question is uh, from Mike who asks, given the lack of political will in both parties to address the debts and deficits, what is the best way to convince Congress to address the national debt? How do we get congressional buy-in? Uh, Chris, did, did you want to- Well, I think we need- yeah, I th so here's what it's it's true that, you know, if you wind the clock back a few decades, federal politicians of both parties uh, were worried about deficits. If you go back and read the budgets of Ronald Reagan or even Jimmy Carter, for example, uh, there was a great fear uh, that deficits would cause high inflation. They would cause mortgage rates to rise and that sort of thing. So politicians were scared of deficits and they and they passed a number of laws in the 80s and 90s to try to reduce deficits. That is no longer the case. Politicians of both parties don't fear deficits now. And that's a, that's a terrible problem because they'll continue deficit spending uh, until it's in their political advantage not to. Uh, I think people who believe in smaller government and less debt need to focus more on the damage caused by individual spending programs. Every government spending program causes various types uh, of damage. Uh, they distort the economy. Uh, they, they misallocate resources, they create uh, large bureaucracy and waste. I think moving ahead, I think um, members of Congress who believe in smaller government and fiscal conservatives generally need to focus in on programs, whether it's farm subsidies or housing subsidies, other sorts of subsidies, and focus on the damage caused by those programs and argue uh, for the termination of those programs and devolving a lot of the spending back down to uh, state and local governments. The federal government doesn't need to be involved in hundreds of state and local activities. We should devolve those activities back to the state and we'll let, you will, we'll let the states go their different ways on housing policies and welfare policies and healthcare policies and those sorts of things. So the best way to tackle spending, uh, in my view, is to point out the negatives and the damage caused by all these individual spending programs. Yeah, I, I'd like to comment, Jason, on that because I think that... Very sure. Yeah, I, I agree with Chris, but I would just add a comment, and that is that we aren't entirely dependent on Congress. And uh, I find one of the interesting things about the success of uh, Switzerland in addressing their debt fatigue is that, uh, as Chris said, they rely very heavily on a strong federalist system and direct democracy. The Swiss vote on everything. They vote on fiscal issues. And so in Switzerland, if the government wants to spend money, raise taxes and uh, incur more debt, uh, they generally have to have approval of Swiss citizens and Swiss cantons. So we have a precedent for that in the U.S. too. And that is, of course, we have a federalist system and we have some direct democracy at the state and local level. And I think that that is something that we may need to rely on. Under Article 5 of the Constitution, uh, the states can propose amendments to the U.S. Constitution as well as Congress. In other words, we don't have to wait around for Congress to figure out that this debt fatigue is not going to last forever. 
I think it's, uh, it's possible for the states to propose an, a balanced budget amendment with fiscal rules similar to those that have worked in other countries, and that citizens through their uh, state uh, uh, elected representatives can address the issue as well as Congress. Yeah, let me just briefly follow up with that. I think slightly pessimistically, uh, we're going to need to see some symptoms of our debt crisis uh, before Congress uh, is going to take this up. It's just the politics of cutting any spending program is just terrible, especially if it's just one modest program at a time. Even cutting whole departments like education or HUD would not save each American enough money, but it sure would make uh, uh, a lot of people mad. Let me ask a question, which is in a, in a sense a follow-up to what you just asked, but it's also a question that uh, we have received from social media. Uh, what will be the first signs of a crisis that will alert policymakers to the issue? How will we know when we are not just nearing the fiscal cliff, but when we're actually pitched over it? John? Yeah, I think uh, the first sign will be higher interest rates. Uh, it's just, I, I'm not sure how the Fed is, is uh, doing the uh, Wizard of Oz thing and keeping interest rates low. We're having an all-time demand for uh, loanable funds and we're paying interest on excess reserves to keep it from being inflationary. Uh, it's going to be a struggle to hold the line on interest rates and I think that's, that's where the first break is going to be seen. All right, the next question we have up asks, go ahead, sorry. Just, just a, a Barry, comment, please. I think we're already, we're already experiencing what I, I think is our long run problem here, and that is retardation and economic growth. This debt is starting to have, cause our economy to slow down. And uh, I think that's projected to continue into the future so we're already experiencing a crisis in my view. Right. Thank you. Uh, our next question is as follows. Some economists say that the national debt and continuing deficits are not crisis issues at all because our government can simply create money sufficient to pay its debts at any time. Uh, how would you respond to that view? Well, we're not in a fairy tale land where suddenly scarcity doesn't exist. Uh, the resources that the federal government appropriates for increased spending will come from someplace. And so that's why Barry has, has uh, uh, recognized for all of us who haven't figured it out yet that the economy is growing slower. The federal government is taking up a bigger and bigger share of resources uh, than it would otherwise be in the private sector uh, uh, boosting growth. So I don't buy this notion that uh, that we're in fairy tale land where we can just uh, spend, 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 and there there won't be any consequences. It'll uh, first come out of uh, economic growth, as Barry said, and then it'll uh, be inflationary when we reach the limits of keeping the money out of uh, out of the hands of the public. Um, one of the the, the questions I think alluded yeah. to the the, yeah. the the idea of um uh, modern monetary theory MMT which is this 
uh, well, idea that sort of supercharged Keynesianism that has come along in recent years. Uh, one of the advocates of that, uh, Professor Stephanie Kelton, I read an interview uh, from her recently where, you know, the idea is basically that the government can print money to spend as much as it wants, but it needs to keep uh, an eye on inflation. And then when it sees inflation coming, it can put on uh, the brakes with higher taxes or, or something like that. The problem with that is, I mean, there's lots of problems with it, but one of them is, is that the idea that we can trust uh, macroeconomists to be able to look ahead and to plan the future course of the American economy. Uh, there is disagreement about whether uh, all this uh, deficit spending is going to cause inflation and interest rates to spike uh, down the road. Uh, we don't know. There's reasons right now why we're able, why we're able to run these giant deficits and we're not causing inflation is because the, the central bank is uh, uh, buying all these treasury bonds uh, and the banks that commercial banks receiving the money simply uh, put their deposits in, in at the Fed. And so it doesn't uh, cause inflation in the broader economy. Down the road, economists are the, the track record of economists projecting the future economy is terrible. Economists uh, don't know what's going to happen down the road. And the advice that they should be giving policymakers is, we are unsure about the future course of inflation and interest rates and deficits and many other things. So you policymakers should be prudent. There is no disadvantage to policymakers being prudent, to balancing their budgets, to only spending uh, what they have. There are lots of high, there are lots of top end risks for running this dangerous policy we are running now. And we don't need to. Uh, we should run a more prudent policy uh, now, and that will be better for the long run. Here's something that people often don't take into account is that, you know, we had a big, in 2020, we had the big uh, COVID-19 crisis uh, that pushed up federal deficits by about $3 trillion or so. That's another $3 trillion we're going to be pushing forward onto people, uh, young people in the future. Uh, but people in the future will have their own crises. There may be wars in the future. There may, may be other health crises in the future. So people in the future are going to be paying twice. They're going to be paying for their own crises, and they're going to be paying the cost for our crises. You know, a lot of the financial costs of the COVID crisis were pushing ahead. Well, that is completely unfair, as well as being bad for the economy. We should deal with our COVID is creating this giant cost for our economy now, and we should take the hit now, rather than trying to push all the costs in the future. Policymakers should be prudent, and there's no disadvantage to that. Well, there is. Okay, thank you. Um, did you did you want to add? I'm sorry. Uh, our I mean, next question. Uh, uh, sorry, Barry. Did you did you want to add something? No. Oh, okay. Okay. Our uh, next question concerns the Bull-Simpson proposal from uh, 2010, which would have cut entitlements and raised taxes. It was uh, the product of the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. Was it a mistake to uh, not follow this plan? Was this, was this plan a missed opportunity that we ought to have taken? I mean, certainly, I you know, the uh, that was a really good effort uh, by members in both parties a decade or so ago to uh, balance the to try to reduce federal deficits and ultimately balance the federal budget. 
unfortunately, today I see even less of an appetite to go ahead with that sort of deficit reduction uh, package. As I mentioned, politicians, unfortunately, they fear deficits uh, a lot less than they used to. And I fear that the experience of 2020 is that uh, members of both parties see that, hey, they can just go out and borrow another couple trillion dollars um, from credit markets. Uh, the central bank will come in and buy a lot of treasury debt so they can keep on spending, spending, spending. So in a lot of ways, I think COVID-19 has it created this really bad precedent that the federal government ought to come in and bail out everyone, bail out businesses, bail out state and local governments, borrow massive amounts of money. Um, I, I, I really fear uh, the, the precedent created this year. And that's why I think that the, the focus for um, fiscal conservatives going forward ought to be on pointing out how damaging all these individual federal spending programs are. How would you uh, go about convincing the average American who maybe doesn't care about the debt that this is something that they should care about? What do you say to someone who doesn't have a background in economics or finance about how this is going to affect their lives? Uh, John, I'll, I'll take that one. The first thing that I would do is address this notion that people think that this is affecting this, this is sending a bill to their grandchildren. No, the people listening to this program and even us speakers, that, including us that are retired, are going to feel the effects of this debt crisis. This isn't just uh, uh, passing a bill down to our grandchildren. These effects are going to happen. Well, I should stop. The effects are happening, as Barry has pointed out. And additional, more obvious, more painful effects will happen soon. It is not sustainable. It isn't just a matter of sending a bill to our grandchildren. You know, Jason, I'd like to add that, uh, as John said, we have plenty of examples of what happens when governments fail to address this debt fatigue. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people identify with their state and local governments more so than the federal government. And I, I just wonder what it's like to be a citizen in Illinois. Illinois is a zombie government, a zombie state. They're only, they would essentially be bankrupt now if the government uh, didn't come in and bail them out, subsidize their bond issue, guarantee their bond issue, direct transfers. That's the only thing that's kept states like Illinois and Connecticut going. Uh, and I think citizens in those states can observe that. I think they, in contrast, uh, there are states that have had more success in addressing this problem of debt fatigue and debt and deficits. Colorado has uh, uh, lots of problems, but I think we have a balanced budget amendment. We have some fiscal rules, the Tabor Amendment that has in fact constrained the growth of spending at various points in time. And we do have direct democracy in Colorado where citizens can vote on any increase in debt, any increase in taxes has to have voter approval. And Colorado citizens have, guard, have guarded that uh, uh, strongly over the years. And this year they voted for a tax cut. They voted that any fee has to have voter approval. So even in a purple state like Colorado, I think citizens can observe what happens when you exhibit some fiscal discipline and compare this to Illinois 
and some zombie states. Do you have any ideas in particular for reaching out to the American left? Uh, it rarely gets traction in any event, but uh, it does seem that uh, it may be the harder case to make to our friends on the left. And uh, do you have any clues from other nations who have successfully balanced their budgets and yet they still have uh, some amount of, of uh, social democracy and perhaps a more left-leaning political cast than, uh, than we do. Do you have anything to say to them? Uh, Chris? Canada. Yeah, yeah let me, uh, someone asked the question about the Bull Simpson uh, report a decade ago. This was a bipartisan group in Congress uh, that got together and uh, put together some ideas for reducing deficits. The reason why the political left used to favor, or some on the political left used to favor reducing deficits is uh, because of the fear that rising interest costs would, would crowd out or squeeze out government spending on programs they cared about. So right, it, it appeared you know, years ago that rising interest costs would squeeze out welfare programs and, and those sorts of programs that people on the political left cared about. Unfortunately, as I said, politicians kind of have learned that that kind of doesn't seem to be true right now, that the government seems to be able to keep on borrowing and spending as much uh, as they want. Uh, I would make this argument to people on the political left today that the increasing centralization of fiscal power in the United States, more and more uh, spending, housing education, uh, transit spending and the like is being done at the federal level. I think that really uh, uh, damages and undercuts uh, a lot of values the people on the political left uh, hold, such as diversity and community uh, and local democracy. Diversity and local democracy are undermined by federal spending. Uh, what is wrong with having the different states in the United States follow their own policies on transit and highways and education and those sorts of things uh, and fund those programs themselves? That way you get more diversity, you get local control. When the federal government comes in, as, say, George Bush did with his No Child Left Behind education policy, it sort of bludgeons local democracy and, and forces a one-size-fits-all uh, spending and regulatory uh, regime on, on every state. Uh, we don't need that in the United States. Uh, federalism, uh, decentralizing fiscal power in the United States is something that I think the political left and polit political right in the United States should be able to agree on. So that's why I argue that I think the main way we can reduce uh, this giant federal deficit spending is to decentralize fiscal power out of Washington, uh, put the spending and taxing back in the hands of state governments, uh, and that way it'll be a lot easier for the federal government uh, to balance its budget uh, and, and help us avert this giant fiscal crash that's coming down the road. I think we have time for one more question, and uh the question I'd like to ask is this, uh, should we focus more on the federal uh, spending or on state and local spending? Because uh, we've heard some talk already about how Illinois is uh, a, a sort of a zombie uh, state and uh, that it's carrying around a large, uh, large uh, debt burden. 
uh, how do we solve these uh, these two uh, different levels of the problem in our federal system, either simultaneously or with the appropriate uh, prioritization? Well, let me let me address that. Although Barry and I probably would have said about the same thing on this, namely, we have to stop bailing them out. We have to stop. And by we, I mean us at the at the federal level. We have to stop bailing out the state and local governments because otherwise they're not going to take uh, prudent policies and, and uh, make uh, difficult real, uh, resource allocation decisions at the state level. Harry? Yes, uh, I agree. I think that uh, the, the success of the Swiss, I think can be tied to one very fundamental rule, no bailouts. And this began back in the late 1980s. They had a municipal government that wanted to be bailed out by one of the cantons. And the courts in Switzerland said, no mas, no bailouts. Every unit of government must be fiscally independent and pay its own bills. And uh, ever since then, uh, Swiss, in Switzerland, they don't bail out anybody. There are no zombies. There are no zombie banks. There are no zombie governments. There are no zombie enterprises. And I think that the, the single most important thing we could do was to introduce a no bailout rule. Every unit of government in this country should be responsible, independently, fiscally responsible, uh, balancing its budget. And if they don't, let them go bankrupt. I think one of the best things that could happen is to allow Illinois to go bankrupt. We allow municipal governments to go bankrupt. If Why shouldn't a state go bankrupt? And then they can restructure all these terrible contracts they've negotiated for uh, pension funds that they can't pay for. So we need, to, we need to go back to that type of a strong federalist system with a no bailout rule. All right, we are- Yeah, I, I agree with- uh, uh, I agree with Barry and John on that, and I'll just say a few points about uh, state governments. The first thing to note is that state and local governments in total are only about half of the size of the federal government. So as bad as the problems in some states like Illinois are, the truth is the federal government's debt and deficit situation is so much larger and more disastrous. The second thing I would say is uh, there are some states like Illinois that have been very irresponsible. On the other hand, most states are actually... Uh, you know, they're much more fiscally responsible than the federal government. Why? Because uh, states generally have to balance their general fund budgets every year. Uh, most states have limits, legal limits on their debt issuance. Uh, and states are disciplined by credit markets. When a state starts issuing too much debt, uh, its bonds get downgraded and that creates a break for the debt issuance. So this is why I favor pushing uh, spending and fiscal power out of Washington back down to the state level because in general, uh, state governments are much more fiscally responsible than the federal government. Yeah, Barry's right. We don't want the federal government bailing out state governments. We want state governments um, to fund their own programs. Uh, they can build up rainy day funds to deal with uh, downturns, with recessions. Uh, and, and so I think decentralization and reviving federalism 
uh, that's the way to solve this uh, this uh, fiscal uh, uh, recklessness uh, approach that we've been following now. Uh, that's the way to get some prudence back in our fiscal decision making. Chris, uh, thank you very much. And I would like to uh, take this opportunity to thank all of our panelists for joining us today. We have had a lot of questions and unfortunately not enough time to get to all of them. Uh, the video recording of this event should be available on Cato's webpage later today. And I thank all of you for uh, signing up and attending and asking your questions. Very much appreciated.